So it's kind of an odd way to introduce uh, any sermon, uh, but I'm going to go for it. I'm going to talk about the mafia. Uh, and uh, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I watched The Godfather when I was in college and became a huge fan of the kind of the whole genre of um, gangster movies. Uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the big three are, you know, Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and Goodfellas is the other big one that everyone watches. And um, I'm, not, I'm not condoning anyone to go right off and actually watch Goodfellas. It's got a lot of the language and other things in it. But there's an interesting thing about the mafia, because there's not a made-up thing. I mean, the mafia is real, right? There's an American mafia. There is a Russian mafia. There's a Jewish mafia. There's an Irish mafia. Uh, there's the mafias coming, there's, a, there's a Latin American uh, mafias, there's all these different cultural groups, there's Japanese mafia, Chinese mafias, there's mafias all over the world, and it's not something you just said that, that the movie's made up, it's been around since the 19th century. And actually, this, if you didn't know this, where did this, this entity, this organization, uh, this criminal organization come from? It didn't come from James Bond, it came from... Uh, actual history. It comes from the 19th century. Uh, Sicilians and the and were, you know, a lot of the Godfather type characters and the Soprano type characters are all Sicilian Italians that come from the island of Sicily. And what happened was is that uh, and in the 19th century, a lot of invading army, a lot of foreign nations would come in and basically rule and control the island of Sicily. At that time, Italy was kind of a disjuncted country. There was not, there wasn't a lot of unity amongst the, the city states, the city city states, and so there was a lot of the separation and a lot of division in the country of Italy. So Sicily was kind of ruled by itself, but because of that, they were invaded by a lot of different forces. And so the mafia was created to protect the people. So in a sense, it was a community institution that was, in a sense, was kind of men would rise up, take up arms, and protect their community and protect their family. So it actually has a pretty good origin story. And the problem is, is as it as it grew in its in its uh, in its industry to protect the people, it became also an entity about uh, black markets, and they would sell arms, they would sell drugs, they would sell prostitutions, they would do all kinds of criminal criminal acts to make more money, and it became kind of what you think of ma mafias or gangsters. In actuality, the Russian mob started off really it got a lot of its power starting with after the fall of the communist. Uh, above the Soviet Union when communism was, was basically failed in Russia, a, a lot of the police force were so disbanded. There was no, uh, there was a really very little police and security system in Russia at that time that the mafia took over protecting businesses, protecting communities, and protecting and making sure people honored agreements. And so people would pay the mafia to make sure that the other party in the deal would actually be, would actually be honest in there dealings and they would be honest with their word and so people would contract the mafia to be protection racketeering. They would racket, basically they made a lot of their money from protecting and protecting communities and people. And I, the reason why I talk about the mafia is because the mafia and, and its origin story was about pushing out that which was not good in a community. Pushing out that which was not good for people, protecting people was its initial reason why it started. We're going to talk a little bit about killing sin, and so I think that's a pretty good way to introduce 
this topic of mortifying sin and killing sin. So we see Paul starting off here uh, in verse chapter, verse 12. Uh, he, he's kind of continuing his, his uh, logical steps throughout this chapter that you have no condemnation in Jesus Christ. That's kind of the title of the, of the series. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so he, he lays this out that, okay, why do we have no condemnation in Christ Jesus? Why is it that we who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he says in Romans chapter 3, how is it that we are now under no condemnation? How is it that we have no judgment under God if we are actually sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God? Well, it's in Christ Jesus. God offered Christ Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, as an offering for sin so that we may fulfill the righteous requirements of his law. So who are no longer in the flesh, but are now in the spirit of God. And that he goes kind of talking about now that since we are in the spirit of God, that we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, who is God, dwells in the hearts of those who are in Christ Jesus, who put their trust and faith in Christ Jesus. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 says that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead also dwells in you. This is an awesome, awesome promise. And it's so cool. And it, I haven't even, like, as a, a pastor who's read a lot of the Bible and other books, I don't even understand 5% of that. How does it, how is it that God's spirit dwells in me? That, I, that God's presence literally dwells in me as I walk and talk and act in God's world. And so the first point, and, and, the, and the, the title is The Lifestyle of the Saved and Adopted. Kind of off the, the lifestyle of the rich and famous, and we saw that show where people talked about all the rich people and all their boats and yachts. I mean, yachts and boats, and everything, but cars and, and houses and, and all, their, all their wealth, right? the lifestyle of the rich and famous. So, this is like, what is the lifestyle of the saved and adopted, those who are in Christ Jesus? What is the lifestyle of a Christian? Point number one is this is kind of verse 11 and 12 is spirit possessors. We are possessors of the spirit. So talking about, again, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Life, because of righteousness, because you've been justified in Christ, God, God has sentenced you and pronounced you righteous because of the work of Christ on the cross. Not by any work of, that you have done, but what Christ has done on the cross. You are now righteous. You have life in Christ. You are now, there's peace between you and God. You've been reconciled to God because of the work of Christ. You were once Enemies of God, as Romans 5 says, are now reconciled to God. You're now sons and daughters and children of God. You're now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You're now righteous. You have life. Um, it says that in verse 11 that, that your, your, your life is now indwelt with, with His Spirit. Even though you have mortal bodies, even though you're still in the flesh, even though you still struggle with sin, even though you, even though you will eventually die in this world, you are still indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You will, you do have life in your mortal body. So he says, so then, brothers, in verse 12, we are debtors. Debtors. Debtors to what? We are debtors to, we're obligated to live the Spirit. You are now in debt, which is kind of a negative term. So obligation, you're obligated to now live in the Spirit, because the Spirit dwells in you, because Christ has now won you victory over sin, now that you are the righteous requirement of God's law is complete in you, you're now obligated to live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Christ's death and resurrection has 
has won you righteousness, it has won you life, it has won you his spirit. Therefore, you're obligated to live according to the spirit. You are under no condemnation now because of Christ. Therefore, you are obligated to the spirit. Uh, Paul says in Titus 2, 11 through 14, who gave himself up, talking about Christ, gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You were saved to no longer live according to the flesh, to live according to the Spirit. Think of, I took one yesterday, family photo, right? Uh, you take those family photos usually around holidays or birthday parties of, of someone in, in you or in the family, so you have to be part of the family photo, right? Uh, and which is interesting, like you can't get out of the family photo, right? You're obligated to be in the photo. Um, and it's interesting, especially when uh, my in-laws are in town. I, once, I wasn't a part of their photos, right? Like, I wasn't, I wasn't some random... Uh, awkward uh, uh, dude who just happened to be in their photo. I was, when I married Lisa, I became a part of the Paulman family, right? And therefore, I'm in the photo. I'm in the family photo. And so, if they put a family photo on the wall and it's recent, I'm usually in those photos. Same with my family. When Lisa's with us and we take a family photo, she's in the photo. She's a part of the family. We're obligated to be a part of the photo because we're in the family. You're no longer in the flesh. You're now in the spirit. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Galatians 5, 16 through 21 talks about the, the works of the flesh. Because right? it's kind of, what is the work of the flesh? What is that? I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm skin and bone and, and, and blood. What is a work of the flesh? It's kind of odd language. Let's see if you're new to the Bible. What is works of the flesh? Well, Paul gives us a definition of that in Galatians chapter 5. Um, he says here in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the Spirit. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're no longer, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these I warn you as I warned you before. And those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's interesting these 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 um, lists that Paul provides. The first three are talking about sins of the body. So anything that is a sin of the body, if you were to kill someone like with your actions, that is a sin against God. That's a work of the flesh. If you were to steal something, if you were wanting something so badly, you coveted it and you envied it. Therefore, you went out and you actually stole it from someone else. Even though it's not your possession, is a sin of the body, is a work of the flesh. The other two are idolatry and sorcery. Those are, are sins of not trusting God, right? Idolatry is simply an action where you don't trust the one true God and you worship a, a God that's false. You put your trust and devotion to Him. Anxiety and frustration, discontentment, unhappy with your lot, unthankfulness, sin against God's providence, sin of the mind. All of these are sins of the flesh. It's not just simply stealing and, and killing and, and, and having sex out of wedlock. These are not just the works of the flesh. Sins of the mind, being discontent, being frustrated, being one who's unthankful. These are sins against God. These are works of the flesh. The other few there, the enmity, strife, jealousy, these are all sins of emotion. 
There is it, you expect something, right? And someone doesn't do what you expect, you get angry, right? You expect sometimes someone to do an action or to do something, and when they, they fail to do it, you get angry. That is a work of the flesh. We seek out our own justice and therefore are filled with fits of anger and jealousy and rivalries and dissensions. These are all works of the flesh. And everyone in this room fits one of these. We've all failed and we are all sinners. We've all done works of the flesh. None of us are exempt from that. It says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. A good way to think of this is the prodigal son, right? In Luke chapter 15. Prodigal son, if you've never heard the parable of the prodigal son, you have a younger son and an older son, and they had one father, and the younger son wants his inheritance from his father so he can go off and do his own thing. And so it says that he squandered his property, his inheritance, and reckless living. So in a sense, he did sins of the flesh, right? He did works of the flesh. He feels what Galatians chapter 5 is saying. He went off and did reckless living. It says he began to be in need. He longed to be fed. Death awaited him, right? If he didn't go back to his father, like the story tells us, he would have died. So kind of the moral here is if you continue this reckless living, continue this works of the flesh, you will die. Death awaits you. This is your sentence. This is your, 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 your fate. But then he returns home, right? He's no longer under condemnation. He returned and he is redeemed, no longer under obligation to live recklessly. Brother, he was obligated now to live according to the will of the Father again. That life brings, that life brings life. So if he kept away, he stayed in the far off country, continued his reckless living, he would have had nothing and he would have died. Instead he went home, he was accepted by his father, he was redeemed by his father, he's welcomed back home, he puts a robe back on him, a ring on his finger, he, he slaughters the fattened calf, that's life. He goes back home. No longer living according to reckless living. So he lives according to spirit, which brings life, not death. So I don't know where you are in life, but if you're living a reckless life, if you're doing, if you're a, a, if you are, are habitually living a life as opposed to God, if you're doing things that are opposed, and I'm not talking about, well, I'm, I don't kill people and I don't have orgies and I, and I don't uh, get in fights out of, out, outside of bars. Everybody, that doesn't really fit me. No, I'm saying that any works of the flesh are sins of the mind, sins of the emotions, sins of actions. These are all a part of works of the flesh. And if we can continue eventually living that way, distrusting God, we will reach death. I mean, death will await us with that reckless living. Life is coming home back to God. So the reason why now Paul talks about mortifying sin, he talks about here in verse, verse 13 of Romans chapter 8. It's a weird phrasing because you're like, what does that mean? What does it mean to kill the deeds of the body? He says, but as a spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the second point is that you're a sin killer. So you're, 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 possessor, you're a spirit possessor, now you're a sin killer. Romans 7.24 says that, you, that Paul says, I live in this body of death. Sin is always before me. I, I, it seems like I can never do anything good. Uh, I can never follow God's law. I can never be faithful to God. Therefore, I'm always failing. I'm always doing the evil that I don't want to do. I live in this body of death. But then you have this other paradox.
box, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, that says, I'm a new creation in Christ. So I'm a body of death, now I'm also a new creation in Christ. There's this two paradox, what am I? Well, you're both. You're living in a body of death, and if you're in Christ, you also are a new creation in Christ. So we are to kill the deeds of the body. For the power of the Holy Spirit, you actively put to death, murder the works of your sinful flesh. I mean, the, the definition, of the, kind of the, the action of putting something to death, you are executing it. You are murdering it. You are killing it. You're strangling it. You're stabbing it. You're shooting it. You're doing anything to get rid of it and put it to death. So who is this talking about? Well, first off, it's talking about those who are filled with the Spirit, those who are Spirit-filled people. The one filled with the Spirit of God is one who has to put the deeds of the body to death. So if you're not a Christian, if you're, not, if you're an unbeliever, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, you cannot put the deeds of the body to death. Because you can't do it without the Spirit of God. You're not enabled by the Spirit of God to kill the deeds of the body. So speaking of those who are filled with the Spirit, one filled with the Spirit of God, it's your duty as one filled with the Spirit to put to death sin. Romans 6.19 I'm speaking in human terms within your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, living to sanctification. The way that you do that is in the Spirit of God. When you're in the Spirit, and the Spirit of God dwells in you, we are to actively put to death this disease of the body. You notice that it doesn't say you, uh, it's, a, it's an active verb, kill. The, the deeds of the body. This is an active thing. We're not passively involved in this. By the Spirit, in the Spirit, we are killing the deeds of the body. Our sinful thoughts, our sinful emotions, our sinful actions are all things we have to put to death. And it says there's a promise when we do this, you will live. It says in Galatians 6, 8, sowers of sin will reap sin. Those who sow to righteousness will reap Righteousness. If we kill the deeds of the body and we and we sow things of the spirit, we will reap the things of the spirit. The spiritual life in Christ is power to live a life of holiness, joy in suffering. First Thessalonians 3:8, for we now now we live, you're standing fast in the Lord. The promise here is life. Joy in suffering. Being spiritually filled, putting the deep Putting the, the death, the deeds of the body will lead to spiritual life in Christ. It will lead to the power to live a life of holiness, joy in suffering, faith in tribulation. We are to constantly be killing the sin. It's not something we do like, oh yeah, when I became a Christian, the day I became a Christian, that's when I put the deeds of the body to death. No, you constantly do this. Paul says you live in a body of death, you're constantly killing sin. Romans 7 19, 19 nothing good dwells within me. Sin is always at work within me, Galatians 5, 17. There is no peace treaty with sin. There is no coming to terms with sin. It's like Matt Chandler's uh, a metaphor with the lion. It's like the guy makes peace with the lion, thinking he could just hang out with the lion, right? He could sleep with the lion. He could eat with the lion. He could go to the restroom with the lion. Do everything with the lion. The lion's not going to hurt him. And then one day, the lion eats him. Because that's what lions do. And so if we continue to think we can make peace with sin, you will be eaten. There is no peace treaty with sin. You constantly are killing sin. You're not allowed to establish a foothold in your life. Sin has no residence in your life. The Spirit of God has 
resonance in your life. There's a, uh, I don't know if you know about the history of this, but in 2008, uh, R- the Russia invaded parts of Georgia. And so right now, Georgia recognizes, and the United States, and most of Europe recognizes Georgia's border, but the Russians recognize a separate border, which is several miles further in Georgia. And so right now, there's like a barbed wire fence. So th- there's a story about this man who owned a farm, right? The next day, the Russians moved the border into his farm. So that was a guy who once was Georgian is now Russian. This is because the Russians decided to put their boundary there. So you used to have this farm that now is separated. Part of it's Georgian and part of it's Russian. And, and this, 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 this idea that the Russians now have a foothold in Georgia. Sin cannot have a foothold in your life. There's no peace treaty. There's no coming to terms with that. It's not allowed. It's not allowed to build a border in your life. Sin cannot reside too close. You cannot make little of sin. Grace is not a license to sin. You're now the home of God himself. The spirit dwells within you. Sin is not allowed in you by any means. The spirit within us kills sin, causing our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits that are opposed to the flesh. We have to work at the root and the habit of our sin in order to weaken it, destroy it, and take it away. God works within our new properties to kill sin. We are now new creations in Christ. We're no longer our old self. So the Spirit of God works in us. It works under the properties of one who has been redeemed and saved and dwelt with the Holy Spirit. So therefore, killing sin is what it does. Therefore, you must fight sin. Seize it. Bring it to the wall of God and the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, and then condemn it and fully execute it for what it is. Take it to the law of God. Take it to Scripture. Take it to the grace of Christ. Take it to the cross and say, you do not belong in me because I am now owned by Christ. And therefore, you're condemned and I'm going to kill you. Kill you. It's like Christ when he stepped on the snake and cut off its head. It does not belong in your life. Now adapt graces that stand in opposition to them. Scripture, fellowship, prayer, repentance, love towards others, charity, giving, service. These are all opposed to sin. And it helps us fight sin. Understand the guilt, dangers, and evil of your sin. Long for deliverance. Rise against the first actions and conceptions of sin. Practice self-abasement before the majesty of God. Realizing that you are not perfect. You are not good in yourself. You're only good because you're in Christ. Therefore, you stand under the holiness of God and recognize that you are guilty of sin. And you ask for deliverance. You don't rationalize. You don't make peace. You don't lessen sin. You recognize what sin is, and you recognize what God thinks of sin, and you put it to death. And we know that God is full of all grace and all power to kill sin in us. We focus on Christ's death on the cross, his salvation. We will kill sin in us. You make it your business to kill the power of sin. You do as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and you pluck out your eye so that you aren't to sin because you recognize that you are a Christian and your lifestyle now is to put sin to death. That is your lifestyle. That is what you've been saved to do is to sin, to kill sin at its roots, at its core. The third point is that so you're a sin killer, you're a spirit possessor, but you're also a prince and princess. Princess and princess. For all are led by the spirit are children of God. 
You did not receive a spirit of slavery. The indwelling spirit is not a spirit that leads to fear and servitude. Right? I mean, the spirit of God does not lead you to fear. It doesn't lead you to servitude. It leads you to sonship. It leads you to daughtership. It leads you to being a child of God. Not one who is a slave. Or one who is full of fear. To fall back into a garden scene in the sense that we are not given a spirit that puts us back in the garden where we are to close ourselves and hide the bushes from God. Now think about Lincoln. Lincoln's getting to his age now where he recognizes that when he does something wrong and recognizes justice a little bit here. Where he recognizes that, okay, I did something wrong and I know that something's going to happen and so I'm going to run away and hide. There was one recently where it wasn't even that big of a deal. I was like, tell him, you didn't really do anything wrong. I just wanted to talk to you for a second. But he thought he was in trouble, so he'd hide on the table. And I think, and I think you know, we, we got to laugh at children, but we are very similar that way. We think God, we're like, we need to hide from God. But we're children of God. Why are we hiding from him? We're not, we didn't receive a spirit of servitude or spirit of fear. We received a spirit of adoption. An adoption is not some, uh, some second-class citizen. It's not, a, it's not a resident, but not a full citizen, right? Someone who has a visa card, but isn't a full citizen. That is not what adoption is. We are not servants. We are sons. We're not Oompa Loompas in Willy Wonka's factory, right? We, he didn't save us and then make us actually like servants and slaves in his chocolate factory, which is kind of a weird little, like, Element to that story and level, like where does that, where, where, do they have any freedom? Are they just kind of a slave to really Wonka's weirdness? But like, we are not slaves. We are sons. Full children of God. Given all the privileges and liberties of children. Whom we cry out, Abba Father. Not Master, not, uh, we call him Father, Abba, Father. Full children of God. Uh, we get all the rights to become children of God with full access to the Father. And we cry out, Father, who is tender to us. I love what Paul says. He calls us Abba, Father. Not just Father, but Abba, Father. Papa, Daddy. <laughs> we cry out, Papa, Father. A real child in need doesn't say, Hey, Dad, will you please come help me? He cries out, or she cries out to God, Come, help me. I need your help. Father, Papa, Daddy, come help me. A full child. That's why when we cry out, we know he will come. There's a, there's a sad story about orphanages in the third world. Babies don't cry there. I don't know if you've heard this before. The reason why babies don't cry there anymore is because they recognize that no one will come help them. So when babies actually recognize no one will come help them, when they cry out, they will stop crying. So one of the chilling, sound, one of the chilling places in the world is orphanages where babies don't cry. The chilling Reality. And the reason why they don't cry is they know that no one's going to help them. We cry out to God because we know He will come and help us. I mean, we know He's going to come. We cry out, Papa, and He's there. Because He's everywhere. Psalm 139 says, God, David said, I can't hide from you, God, because God's everywhere. And He's the great Father who comes and He's there. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The, the, when you know someone is a Christian, when you know someone is a child of God, they can cry out to God. Those who are not Christians don't cry out to God. They may believe in God, they may pray to God, they don't cry out to God. Children cry out to their father, right? A, a, so people who know me or children who know me don't cry out to me, right? They don't say, 
Mr. Matt, come help me. They say, hey, Matt, can I help? My children, Lincoln and Maggie, cry out for me because they know that I'm their daddy. They know that I will come. The testimonies, the Spirit brings testimonies there to us when we cry out to him. It bears witness. We run to the cross. We run to God's word. We run to Christian fellowship and encouragement. We run to confession and repentance. When true believers cry out, and that's how they cry out. They run to where they know God will be. The last point here is the heirs of glory. Heirs of glory. And the last passage here, verse 17, if children, of a, if, if children then heirs with God. Heirs with God. Heirs is a, is a person, legally entity to the property or rank of another, uh, another's inheritance and continues the legacy of a possessor, uh, uh, someone who's a beneficiary of God's kingdom. Uh, you know, Esau sold his inheritance to his brother Jacob. He sold his inheritance God's blessings through faith in Christ Jesus. It would be like one of us who recognized what we had and we sold it away. Because it was, it, to us, it was worthless. It didn't have any value. And so we sold it away to have a soup because our husbands were hungry. God's inheritance, God's great blessings through faith in Christ Jesus is precious. It is, it is one that the person will sell all that he has to gain the treasure in that land because it is full of, it's, it's so valuable and so, therefore, our inheritance in Christ is valuable. It is priceless. It is something that has, it has so much worth to it. And so, we are heirs with God, co-heirs with Christ. So, I want to go back to the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm going to change the story a little bit. Take the parable of the prodigal son. Instead of the older brother being the older brother who, who thinks he's better than his other brother, he's full of self-righteousness, think of the other brother as one who is sad that his brother has left. And so the, his father sends the older brother to go find the other, younger brother. <coughs> sends him off to the far country to rescue his young son from his reckless living. And so the older brother goes and he finds his younger brother. He finds him in the dirt. He finds him in the pigsty. who's hungry and has no money. He finds him there. He rescues him. He brings him back home. The older brother then shares his inheritance with the younger brother. The older brother who did nothing wrong, who, who actually has the right to go, you're worthless and I'm going to leave you here to die, instead brings him home and gives and shares part of his inheritance with his brother. The reckless, the wasteful younger brother is now, is now a part of, the older brother shares his inheritance with him. The older, younger brother becomes one, of, one with the older brother. He then takes on the mission of the older brother because they are now one together. They now share an inheritance together. This is the same reality of us in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the older brother who comes and saves us from our reckless living and shares his inheritance with us. What an amazing story. He died on the, on the, on the cross for our sins. And then we are now baptized into Christ. We die to our old self, we're risen to new life. Then we suffer with him because we are in him. We are with him. We baptize with him. We are connected. We are unified. We're in union together. We're in harmony together. When Jesus says in Acts 9, 4, that says to Paul or Saul, he says, why are you persecuting me? When it says that we suffer with him, we suffer with the rest of the church when the church suffers. When, it's, when Paul says in Galatians 6, 2, to carry each other's burdens, we suffer with one another because Christ suffers with us. 
In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11, when Paul talks about comfort and afflictions, we comfort those in afflictions because we are all in Christ. And when Christ, when one of us suffers, Christ suffers, and therefore we're all connected together, therefore we all suffer. And so we all show each other comfort in our afflictions. And when one of us is in afflictions, we comfort one another. We suffer with one another so that we can be glorified with Christ. One of my favorite passages that I just read this week is the last thing I'm going to say. It's Revelation 14.1. Revelation 14.1. I don't understand this passage all that much, but I think this is powerful. In verse 1 it says, Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name on his father's name written on their foreheads. Christ has sits on the, on, the, on the throne. He is conquered, and we stand with him. We are glorified with him. We suffer with him when the church, when the church suffers. We also are glorified with him in the future. <coughs> that is our future. That is our, 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 what's coming to us when you are in Christ. The inheritance that, that is in Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. Christ is our older brother who, we, who accepts us. And we stand with our brother who has conquered all. Who has given the name above all names. Who all the enemies are under his feet. And we are with our older brother. We are united with him and are glorified with him. Kind of in conclusion here, I don't know if you've ever read the book or um, watched the movie of the murder of the Orient Express. Uh, if you haven't seen it, then I'm, I'm probably going to ruin a little bit to you, but it's like a mystery, and so I'm going to ruin the end for you. But there's an inspector, and the inspector's on a, on a, on a, on a, uh, on a train, and, and there's a murder that happens on the train. And one, the guy who was murdered, John uh, Cassetti, is a, is a criminal. And who um, who uh, who kidnapped a young girl and killed the young girl, and so um, that's and so he is murdered on this train, and so the, the inspector does this this does this investigation on the train to find out who the killer was, and at the end of the story you find out that all of the of the of the, the about twelve he stabbed twelve times. The, these twelve people who were suspects all helped to kill this guy because of, because they were all connected. To the family that this 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 criminal uh, uh, killed and, and kidnapped, and, and, and so uh, they they coordinate together to kill this evil and corrupt man. And it made me think that that is what the church is. We are coordinating with one another to help each other kill. I mean, it's not just your action on by yourself that you have to deal with your sin on your by your by yourself. That we help one another to kill each other's sin. To put to death the sins of our bodies. And I want to just uh, kind of uh, uh, put some notice on these ministry teams that we started. Last week I talked about the evangelism team. This week I want to talk about the prophecy team. The team that talks about character and battling and, and battling sin and fighting sin and all that. Which is uh, led by Robert Hudson and David Greenwood. And they are going to help us as a church coordinate together to kill sin. By the spirit that's within us. Because character is a value of this church. Character is a lifestyle of the Christian life. And we have to pursue character. We have to pursue holiness. We have to be accountable to one another. We have to help one another conquer sin and put to death the sin in our bodies. And we can't do that alone. You cannot succeed by yourself. We have to help one another to put to death the deeds of the body. You're a child of God and dwelt with the Spirit of God. You're heirs with God. 
co-heirs with Christ. You have been given a spirit of holiness, a freedom, an adoption. Let us fight our sins together. That is our lifestyle. That is our business. That is something we must do as believers, and we have to help one another to do that. We have to coordinate with each other to do that. So I want to encourage you. Get involved in group groups. Go to Bible studies. Have coffee together. Have lunch together. Have dinner together. Have, have meetings at work. You work together. And help each other fight sin. Put all the, vulnerability, all the shyness and the fear away and be vulnerable with one another because we have to fight sin in our bodies. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you.